0: Said to them, if anybody comes to the side door, no matter who it is, police, fire, no matter who it is, you call the police and you summon the police to the door. Don't let anybody in. And they said to him, step away from the desk. Come out here from behind that desk and let's get a good look at you. Now, Rick uh, has has a decision to make because Rick in front of him has the only alarm. It's an emergency alarm. That is inside the museum that he can press, that can tell the outside world there's an emergency going on at the museum. Summon police now. Hey, this
1: is Matt Cox, and I am I am with um, Stephen Kirkjian, and he is a retired reporter with the Boston Globe. Pretty sure that's right. Boston Globe, correct? Exactly, exactly. Yes. Wrote a great book on the Gardner Museum heist, and he's uh, he's here to explain the whole thing to me. It's going to be great.
0: Um, so uh, Matt is uh, doing these podcasts, and as I understand, he has concentrated in the criminal world. Uh, this too is the. Um, is a case out of the criminal world. Uh, but it's something different. Uh, it's not money. It's not jewelry. It's art of the ages. And, um, it uh, stems from a theft that took place March 18th, 1990. That is now 32 years ago. Uh, and, um, it has remained, a a case that I've focused on. I f- began focusing on the mid nineties uh, when I returned to the globe from uh, my pri- prior assignment, which was in Washington, but I had been an investigative reporter all my life and had uh, in fact had been a founding member of the Globe spotlight team, which if you haven't seen the movie spotlight, you get a sense of what it does. Um, and uh, that, that team uh, started in the early 70s, and broke some of the biggest stories in Boston, including the criminal alliance that Whitey Bulger, who is uh, the most notorious notorious criminal in Boston history, uh, and the secret alliance he had with the FBI. That was a story that was broken by the Globe Spotlight team uh, in the late 80s, Uh, and, You know, I wasn't a member of the team then, but uh, uh, when I came back from Washington, I joined the team up. I joined the team in 2002, and uh, right after it had broken what I consider the greatest, most important uh, journalism story, uh, 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 at least in Boston history, and that is the clergy abuse what's known as clergy abuse scandal that the Boston Archdiocese was covering up, tolerating probably encouraging uh, abuse of children uh, by uh, priests within the archdiocese, knowing about it, tolerating it, and covering up on it. That story, too, was broken by the Globe Spotlight team in 2002. Uh, So I thought, you know, since the Globe Spotlight team stands for something beyond breaking headlines, but something that's important about Boston, I would do a book on the Gardner Museum because I consider it to to have an important uh, element to it about Boston. The the museum was opened in 1903 by Isabella Stewart Gardner, and in it, uh, she had a collection of artwork of the ages. At the time it opened in 1903, it was considered the largest private collection of art in America, and she had collected that art with her husband, who was one of Boston's uh the uh, most well-to-do entrepreneurs uh, from ni- 1860 to 1880 when he passed away and she decided that she would uh, uh, put the mu- put the art in the museum because what she had found in her travels with her husband what th- that art was defined a civilization. And while United States, America was becoming a world power in the late 1800s, it lacked what she saw was made these civilizations that lasted forever, going back to the dynasties of of, of China, and that was the art. And she wanted to uh, encourage an appreciation and inspire uh, a, um, a, 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 a a experimentation in art here in America. So she. Uh, built this museum, one of the nicer sections of Boston, uh, close to the uh, Boston M- M- Museum of Fine Arts, and uh, four stories of uh, building. And uh, the fourth floor is, is, uh, was an administrative offices, but the other three uh, floors were filled with galleries. And uh, as I say, it was the richest collection of uh, uh, a private collection of art in America. And when it opened in 1903, she, she had two mandates. One is that, was, that, the, that people could go there for free. That had to change over the years. It's now uh, a tidy sum, uh, but it is still uh, free of charge for students. And the second was that Boston school students, you know, the little ragamuffins, uh, the eighth graders, should each class would go through the museum and look at the museum and see the art and get up close to the art. And she what she wanted to do was inspire Bostonians, if not Americans, to appreciate and experiment with art. And it worked, I know that personally it worked because my father, he was a commercial artist, came to America as a refugee from a, uh, from a survivor of the Armenian genocide. And uh, when he was uh, got into art school, he would go over to the museum every day after school and study the, the masters of the, of the ages, Rembrandt, Vermeer. Uh, and, uh, the, but when Mrs. Gardner died in early tw- mid-20s, her, her will had one provision in it that I think sowed the seeds for the theft that was to come. And that was that nothing could change in the galleries. The museum had to stay as it was at the time of her death. And uh, so the museum became sort of a timepiece. And um, the trustees who took over running it uh, uh, didn't have really a purpose except to open the doors. Uh, They didn't have a purpose to raise money because they didn't have to raise money because all the collection was complete. But in not collecting and not uh, in not uh, going to the endowment and raising money from their well-to-do sponsors, the museum itself began to fray. Uh, it was paying their uh, their their guards about just about um, minimum wage, which was more than four, three or four dollars an hour. Um, and the, the 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 museum began to fray. Uh, so by the mid '80s, uh, the collection um, the, there was no central air conditioning, and the the security director whom they hired, the first security director they hired in the early 80s, told me that he would come in in the mornings and the paintings themselves, the canvases were were filled with moisture. Now that was uh, hurting the, the, the paintings. So he went to the trustees and he said, you have to put in a central air conditioning. They did, half a million dollars. He went back to them the next year and said, uh, you've got to put in a fire alarm system. They said, we don't have money. You know, we spent all our money last year on a central air. Well, he raised $50,000 to get a uh, fire alarm system in. Uh, but they didn't get around to improving the, um, the uh, quality or the professionalism of the, uh, of the guards. Uh, they continued to be retirees or kids who came in and work, were working at barely over the minimum wage. And uh, that was certainly true of the two men who were on duty that night of March 18th, 1990. One of the two men uh, had never worked a shift, maybe had worked a shift once before. He was called in that night because the regular uh, fellow, the old timer who had worked the shift, had called in sick. So uh, the second man that uh, who was on duty as ever, he was Rick, um, he too had never had much experience in 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 um in protecting art and in security he had a love of rock and roll and he and a group of friends he roomed with uh, in brighton also brighton area of boston they had started a band and uh, they were doing okay they were having a few ragers at the at their basement of their house, and they would invite in uh, the college kids who lived in the net in the neighborhood, and they would raise enough for the rent, or they would play at the a couple of the senior bars in the neighborhood, and they were doing okay. And he loved the the work as a uh, at the museum, as he told me, because it allowed him to continue what he really wanted to do, which was start a rock and roll band, and uh, quit at quit. Doing that work at midnight, and rush over to the museum, and take take on his job of the night, which was his night security job. And uh, the, the museum was closed. He said it was a perfect job for him. He often was stoned or drunk. He told me, when he showed up at night, but it didn't, bat, didn't matter, because he was um, nothing ever happened. No one ever came in. No one ever knocked at the door uh they you know they did the rounds they uh and there wasn't a little bit of security equipment uh, at the museum uh but there was only uh you know one alarm bell to the outside world if something was going on, but he had never used it because nothing had ever happened. Well, something happened on the night of March eighteenth nineteen ninety have to know look up in your calendar if you're not in Boston. You don't have to tell a Bostonian what March 17th is. It's St. Patrick's Day, and that is a holy holiday in Boston. Uh, The schools are closed. There's a big parade in South Boston, and uh, every cop, uh, whether Boston police or state police, is on duty that day because they're making sure the kids are not uh, getting too drunk and they're paying attention to the parade that's marching up and down Broadway Street in, in South Boston. Well, I think they, the thieves, who planned this theft, had this uh, this night. Uh, the, in, in, this was around one o'clock in the morning. Uh, there were two men dressed in police uniforms in what is thought to have been a um, a, um, a smaller car, uh, you know, with a rear rear uh, window that opened up. And uh, the, the car that the was seen on that street at 1 a.m., 12.30, 1 a.m., who had seen it as a couple of kids who had left the party late and they were walking on Palace Road, which is the side door, the side street that the museum side's on, and they saw these two guys dressed in a in police uniforms, including their hats, and they were sitting in a car uh, about 100 feet away from the side door of the of the museum, well, the kids were drunk, so they didn't try to to get any to inquire about why two cops would be in a in a plain clothes car, not a you know not a Crown Vic as the the, the 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 detectives were in, and not a cruiser. So they they walked away, and at one o'clock, one ten in the morning, the the car inched up closer to the side door of the museum, and the two men got out, still dressed in their uniforms, and they rang the side doorbell of the museum, the bell at the side door of the museum. It was the employee's entrance. And uh, again, uh, Rick, the rock and roller, who had had worked there for about a year at the time, he had a closed-circuit TV at the desk that he could see the two men in police uniforms, And he asked, uh, hello, what is it? What can I do for you? And one of them said, "Uh, we're here to investigate a disturbance. And they said, uh, and he said to them, there's nothing going on. Everything is fine here. And they said, let us in. We're here to investigate a disturbance. Now, Rick, in his mind, his mind is working fast now. I interviewed him many times on this. Um, And he said, all he could think of is that some kids had jumped over a back fence uh, that opened up into the museum's nursery, where the shrubs and plants of the museum uh, were uh, was, were stored, that some somebody had some kids had jumped over that back fence, and someone had seen them and called the police. He had no idea they weren't what they said they were, which were men in police uniforms. So he buzzed them in. he had to buzz them into through two doors. And they came in to his security room, which is right out there in the open, which is another failing of the the museum, that they had an open security desk. And they presented themselves to him. And they said, uh, is there anybody else here? And he said, yes, there's one other security guard. He's doing the rounds. Call him down. And he calls him down. And then they look at him. And they say to him, um, and Rickett is telling me he wondered about them because they kept on, they had both had mustaches, they kept on pressing their mustaches. He now thinks that they were fake mustaches, uh, but he still did not believe that they were anything but what they were said, which were police officers. And then they said to him, he made two grievous errors this night. One is to let them in, because he was told his handbook said to them, if anybody comes to the side door, no matter who it is, police, fire, no matter who it is, you call the police and you summon the police to the door. Don't let anybody in. Well, he had now let them in. And here they were in front of him saying, and they say to him, Rick, you look familiar. Do we have a warrant out for you? And Rick knew he had never been in any scrapes in Boston and so there would be no warrants on him. But he was somewhat suspicious that they were looking at him suspiciously. And he says, no, no, I, I'm clean. I've got nothing against, no nope, warrants on me. And they said to him, step away from the desk. Come out here from behind that desk and let's get a good look at you. Now, Rick uh, has, a, has a decision to make because Rick in front of him has the only alarm, it's an emergency alarm, that is inside the museum, that he can press, that can tell the outside world, it's a private detective agency that the museum had at its ready, that he could, if he had pressed that button, it would have told that private detective company, there's an emergency going on at the museum, summon police now, but he didn't. Why, I said to him, Rick, why did you step away? Why did you do follow what they were saying? Why did you follow and tell them, to go outside where they were on the outside of the security desk. Why did you remove yourself from hitting that alarm? And he said, well, I'll tell you the truth. And he points to his pocket. I had a ticket that night to the Grateful Dead concert in Hartford, Connecticut. This is Sunday night, March 18th, 1990. You can look it up. There were reviews on the music. (laughs) Grateful Dead was playing... March 18th and March 19th, and Rick had uh, 1990, Sunday night and Monday night in Hartford. And Rick had t- tickets to the Sunday night conference. And Rick knew enough about the law that he knew, he said, I knew if these guys didn't believe me, if they kept believing with their mistaken identity, mistaken belief that I was wanted for something, they would have locked me up. And I would not have gotten out of jail until Monday morning, and I would have missed the the Sunday night concert I had a ticket to. So I said, okay. And they said, at this point, I still believe that they were thieves. Uh, they were, excuse me, police. So I stepped away. And the minute he stepped away, the second guard came into the room. But the minute he stepped away, they pushed him up against the wall, put handcuffs on him without frisking him. He said "The only, the first time he knew they weren't cops is when they didn't frisk him. They put handcuffs on him. The second guard came into the room. They did the same thing to him, and they brought them downstairs. The museum has a basement, and they put them in two separate places inside the museum, a basement. And uh, this is around 120, and they spend uh, all, uh, all about 81 minutes inside. They have an hour. They spend another hour inside the museum doing whatever they want to do. Most art thefts are grab and run. Bad guys go in, grab whatever's on the uh, uh, closest that they want to take, and run out before the the alarm starts. But these guys had a whole hour, and they could have done whatever. They could have stayed in there for five hours. The nef- next shift was not going to change until 6.30 in the morning. But they only spent another hour inside the museum, but they wreaked havoc. They stole 13 pieces of all, in all, including two large Rembrandts, a smaller Rembrandt, in one Vermeer, uh, a Degas, and a Monet, and, uh, excuse me, a Monet, uh, uh that was stolen from a, a room that was, um, uh, that no one could figure out how they got into that room. Uh, but there are 13 pieces in all, uh in the total value if you could buy these on the open market now is more than a billion dollars in art was 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 stolen that night and uh, the artwork as I say is of the ages uh that it's not known of beyond uh Boston it's not is 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 held is not uh, is you know is is not thought of as a major crime outside of Boston is a, is a sin is because this is artwork of the ages, Rembrandt's and Vermeer's Um, the only time Rembrandt painted the sea, the ocean that's in a, is in a painting uh, called the uh, Christ in a storm of the sea of Galilee. Um, It shows Christ in a, you know, you can look it up or you can, it's shown in my book here. Um, you can look it up, and uh, it's a stunning painting. Rembrandt didn't need to paint the sea again, because it's so gripping of a painting. So, um, so it, it's thirty-two years later. The art, the, the you know, the, the 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 beauty of the art is remarkable. The mystery behind this theft is even more remarkable. In 32 years, not a, a person has been arrested, either a planner, a holder, uh, uh, a, a robber. No one has been arrested. Not a single piece has been recovered. All 13 pieces, the sm- some of the smaller pieces. There were f- four or five Degas sketches that were taken. There was a, um, a finial, which is the top of a flagpole that was taken. There is a uh, a little uh, called a, a vase, a beaker uh, that was taken. Some of the art that was taken, it, it's again, this museum contained artwork of the ages. It contained what is thought of as the most important piece of art in America uh, on the third floor. They didn't even go up to the third floor. The bad guy stayed within the the first and second floors of the museum. And we even know where they were inside the museum. One piece of of equipment, security equipment, that the museum had put in place uh, a few months before the the theft was a motion detector uh, uh, piece of equipment. And it um, monitored through monitors that are placed in the... uh, the uh, the entries of each gallery. It monitored where the bad guys were inside the museum. So you see, uh, in that transcript, it was able to be. They tried to steal the transcript that was printed out at the at the security desk. The bad guys, as they left, 81 minutes after the theft, uh, they ripped off the transcript as they ripped off a um, a videotape. Of them going through uh, the museum, uh, they ripped that off. But the transcript, that piece of equipment, had a computer chip in it, so the uh, FBI, which took over the case, was able to replay where they were, and um, and it shows the bad guys spent most of it, all of their time inside the museum in the two rooms and the second floor. The, uh, the Dutch room was where they stole the larger, the more important pieces and what is called the short gallery, which is just a room away. And they stole the five Degas prints, but they also spent a lot of time in that room trying to get a, um, trying to get a, uh, a, a, a Napoleonic banner, which hung in a frame uh, above the ground, uh, they hoisted themselves on a little, uh, a little uh, uh, chest of drawers. Um, uh, they, they and they tried to get the banner out, uh, off, of, open the frame to get the banner. They couldn't when they came down. But they took the banner was held by a flagpole, and they took the top of that flagpole, which is called the finial. It's a a golden a golden eagle. You see them on some flagpoles. Uh, but they took that uh, when they got off of the uh, the, uh, the that chest of drawers they came face to face to with a dagar with a, a frame that had five dagar prints they busted the frame and they took the prints. Why do they do that it's it's not the most important thing about those dagar prints is that they were taken uh, nothing else there are uh, finished products of those prints um, but uh, why They showed horse racing scenes And I'm thinking that's that appealed to them uh, So the FBI took over the case in Boston and, and they have worked the case diligently And for the last 10-15 years The FBI has put out this uh, uh, This uh, advisory That whoever, if you have access to the paintings Bring them in If you have access to any of the artwork Bring them in. No questions asked. You won't be asked. You won't be asked to how you got them. You won't be asked any questions, and we'll drive you over to the museum. And there's a ten million dollar reward waiting. Ten million dollar reward, and no questions asked. Yet, still, the FBI says they still haven't had, uh, except for a piece of information that I and a couple of other uh, people provided to them about a year ago uh, that they felt was interesting. Uh, the FBI says they haven't had what they f- would call a proof of life sighting of any of the 13 pieces that were stolen. So I've thought about this. I've thought about two things that I've spent uh, time as an, an investigative reporter. First, who would do it? Who would tr- who would uh, break into the a museum, using such wiles, yet in stealing it, caused such havoc, which that's, I don't um, that, I don't underuse that word, havoc. The, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 every frame was broken. The glass that was on the front of the frames, that was broken. The two Rembrandts, the two large six-foot High Rembrandts, including the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, they were cut out of their um, mm. their stretchers. Cut. You could see the shreds left on the sides of the um, of the of the uh, of the of the uh, the easels. Excuse me, uh, of the frames. If this, there comes to mind. Well, who would order this? You know, there's always a thought of a Mister Big. You know, if you've seen um, the Thomas Crown Affair, two, uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan w- steals a painting that he cannot live without. Well, is was there some Mr. Big art thief who could not live without these paintings? That's a possibility. Is there a criminal who has money and through the drug world or the gun, you know, uh, gun, you know, weapons industry? Cannot live without this Rembrandt and would have ordered up a a crime like this. A theft like this it's possible, but you would not have allowed them to treat the artwork the way they did, which such uh, like I said, havoc. so uh, as I did my reporting, I came upon as and I you know talked to some people who had uh, been involved with art thefts before here in Boston. And I came upon one guy named Miles Connor, a local, he too was a rock and roller, uh, and uh, he too knew about the Gardner Museum. In fact, he said before he was locked up in the late 80s, he had cased the museum with another guy, uh, and he and this other guy had had planned other uh, uh, museum thefts. And uh, this other guy, as it turned out, uh, was a member of the Boston underworld. He was uh, a pretty high up in one of the two gangs in the late 80s that were fighting for control of the Boston underworld. And this is how the Gardner theft story melds into the the Boston crime story. Uh, Because as he told me, Connor told me, the only, unless you're going to, unless you have a, um, a fence uh, who can fence the art that you've stolen available to you, the only reason to steal art like this is to get someone out of jail. Because the FBI, the landed gentry, civilized society, will be so shocked by a theft of this uh, nature, of this um, size, dimension. That the FBI will try to do a deal with you, will, add, will reach out to you and engage you and do a deal with you and say, um, what do you want? We want to what do we have to do to get your artwork back? And um, lo and behold, there was a guy who had been locked up in Boston uh, by the FBI, by the feds, in the late night in late eighty nine, named Vincent Ferrara. And Vincent Ferrara was um, a member of an organized crime gang looking to take care, take control of Boston's crime world uh, in the late 80s. And his driver and one of his closer friends was a guy named Bobby Donati, Donati, D-O-N-A-T-I. And Bobby Donati was this fellow who hung around with Miles Conner and had gotten interested in art theft. And Miles sold him on the belief that if you are able to get your hands on treasured art, the FBI will do business with you. And that's what I came to learn. I talked to someone who was very close to Ferrara, who was locked up in jail in the late, late 89. And Ferrara, this person uh, gave me a long interview, week long interview, and he said to me that, uh, that Donati had gone to Ferrara on several occasions when Ferrara was in jail and said to him that he was going to pull off this theft and get this artwork and try to engage the FBI to let Ferrara out of jail. Ferrara, uh, the intermediary on behalf of Ferrara, whom I interviewed, said, Ferrara said, don't get me involved. I don't want to have anything to do with you to, in getting involved with this theft, but it's the belief. In fact, the person who knows this case better than anyone, even better than the FBI is the head of security for the museum, Anthony Amore. And Amore wrote a letter to a uh, another prisoner whom I was in contact with about a, three or four years ago. And Amore says in the letter that without a doubt, he believes that Bobby Donati was responsible for the theft and Bobby Donati had possession of the artwork after the theft. Did Bobby Donati reach out to the FBI? I don't know that. What happened to Bobby Donati is, I think Bobby Donati tried to, uh, uh, when he wasn't able to, uh, because Ferrara didn't want it to be bartered for his release, I think what happened was uh, Donati went to the underworld to try to fence the material and that's not a good that's not a good that was not a good choice for him. He was killed brutally killed in early, mid ninety one about a year and a half about a year after the year and a half after the theft and whom did he reach out to during that eighteen months i don't know I do know one person he did. And that was a fellow whom I interviewed last year. He was a jeweler who worked in Boston, in the Boston, and he knew Donati. Uh, and uh, he gave me a long interview. And I presented him with a couple of other guys. I presented him to the FBI and Anthony Amori, the head of security of the FBI, of the museum. And I said to him, this guy uh, sat down with Donati. Donati came and talked to him, and he brought in one of the pieces that had been stolen out of the museum. It was the finial; it was the it was the, the top of the, the flagpole. And why did not Donati bring it into to this guy, this jeweler, and he, to, to see if he could fence it? And the jeweler's on the record said to me, and if you can look up the the Globe story. Uh, in the clips um, uh, back in uh, 2021, November 2021, just look up uh, Gardner Museum, Robert Donati and Finial, F-I-N-I-A-L, and you'll see the name of the jeweler and what he told the FBI. We also gave them a a property in a a suburb of Boston that Donati's sister and ex-wife had been living in around the time before his death. And it was my sense that maybe Donati had dropped off material at that house. And the FBI appreciated that information. Uh, they searched the house diligently, they but they didn't find anything. Um, but that's where the mystery remains. Uh, you know, I think from the, the, the family of uh, Bobby Donati, they run hot and cold as to whether or not he could have been responsible for this theft it did take some artis- artifice it did take some wiles and uh, bobby was uh was they 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 didn't think bobby had the 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 smarts to do it uh but others who know bobby and particularly miles connor said he did and uh, could have pulled this off uh what's the secret i think the secret goes tr- through who killed Bobby Donati? I think the family of Donati's family, his sisters, his uh, his son, uh, have been asked uh, many times to help. Uh, they want to know who killed their brother. And I think if they were taken into confidence by the FBI, uh, that, that that information might hold the key to them to get them to cooperate. And that, I've also thought about a social media campaign about this case, uh, which you know, continue to work on it, uh, low these many years. Um, why? Well, you know, art, art is important to us. It's important to Boston. Boston considers itself a world class city. We're no longer ruled by the uh, the law of the street. We're no longer ruled by omerta. Matthew, you Matt, you can tell you your audience, what Omerter is. But it's no well, they longer... Are, they know. They know. It's yeah. no longer the, the operating code of principle here in Boston. You know, we survived the marathon bombing uh, in 2013. Four, five people were killed. A security guard and a police officer and, and just people who were at the marathon were killed. But so many lives were saved after that because of the valiant effort of the first responders and the people in the emergency rooms. And Boston feels that Boston has grown so much as a city uh, than what was the operating principle of Omerta in 1990. And what I think what the museum should do and what the FBI should do is put up in, the museum allows um, the, the empty frames on the second floor where those paintings, majestic paintings had once hung, are the empty frames. Mm. And I would put in front of those empty frames, not the FBI and not, and not even the museum uh, directors. They have, you know, they've suffered valiantly, uh, the loss tragically. But I would put in front of those frames people who have street cred. Uh, not bad guys, not, not that. But, you know, let's take the, the, uh, the, the Cardinal. Cardinal O'Malley has tremendous credibility in both the have world and the have not world here in Boston. And I would have him stand in front of those empty frames and I would tell them, have him retell the story of why Mrs. Gardner hung those paintings on the, on the, inside these galleries. It was for us. It was to make us more conscious, more aware, to elevate our artistic sense. She did it for us. And it's no reason that these paintings remain hidden. And they they were stolen to get someone out of jail and that that never happened. And uh, that effort failed and they were stashed away does someone know where they exactly where they are? I don't think so. I think if they did those, they wouldn't take advantage of the FBI offer of bring it forward, get in with a good lawyer. You get your bring in whatever the paintings look like now. They may be frayed. They may be have a, a, a sign of the ages, uh, worn, worn from the from the the ages that have passed by but there still could be, recovery can be done. Artistic work can be done on them. And with that, we could get those those paintings could return uh, uh, onto the gallery walls. And we would fulfill the pledge that she gave to Boston to make Boston, you know, she brought art to Boston and that she did it for us. She did it for the upper class, and she did it for the have-nots. And so get them back to Boston. Uh, this is important artwork. Yes, it, uh, Netflix did a terrific job last year, four hours' worth of the mystery, but they didn't come to a conclusion. And the conclusion, though, rests within Boston, within the some of the neighborhoods of Boston. Even if you don't know, you have some pieces of of information that could be valuable to the FBI, the museum, or if you don't go to a lawyer, a lawyer will represent you well and bring, and he will represent you and bring that information uh, to the, to the authorities. You'll be better off. The art the museum will be better off. All of Boston will be better off. So um, that's my, uh, that's the story that uh, that I've worked on uh, for uh, several years now and I still consider it Boston's last best secret uh, We remain to you know like I say there's you know there's only two things that uh, keep Boston from being a world-class city uh, One of them is, uh, is is getting Boston another. World Series Championship is, but also is getting our paintings back into the uh, the Gardner Museum, and um, it's a ch- I, you know it's a challenge that that'll stay in front of us until the paintings are are returned. You know we the summer that I was working on writing my book, Master Thieves, <laughs> uh, was the summer of two thousand fourteen. And it was the summer of the Ice Bucket Challenge. If um, if you're too young, you might look it up. Ice uh, what your bro- older brothers and sisters, if not your parents did, was they dumped buckets of ice over their heads and uh, then uh, challenged, put it to, and did so on Facebook, and then challenged two or three of their friends to do likewise. As well as contribute to the um, to the uh, to the research for uh, to fight ALS, the Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, uh, for for medical research to find a cure for ALS. Uh, that summer, in July and August of that summer, that that uh, uh, ice bucket challenge was promulgating out there. They raised eighty million dollars uh, for ALS research. The previous summer, two million dollars. So, uh, social media can be a big um, can be a big catalyst in drawing people's attention, and I think something like that could be done here to get uh, uh, arouse Boston people who know something. To uh, arouse them with a, a you know, a, a a a presentation by the cardinal or people of that stature, uh, and have them challenge Boston that we await to become a world class city, uh, and we could solve this by us, the citizenry of Boston. Forget the FBI. Forget the museum. Forget the heavens. This is our city, the city of the haves and the have-nots. We showed that in the response to the to the Ice Bucket Challenge, to the response to the to the, um, to, the, uh, to, the to the to the to the marathon bombing. That it's our responsibility. Calling on the conscience of Boston to return these paintings, and. So the mystery uh, needs uh, needs to be solved. If the story doesn't get told, so be it. I think the story it, I've told the story as well as I can in the Boston Globe in my book, Master Thieves. But if the, the full story is to where they've been hidden all these years. So be it. Get make take availability. Take avail yourself of the of the, uh, eight, uh, the $10 million award that the museum has put out there and the pledge that the FBI has made that no one gets prosecuted if you tell them what you know and you, if not, bring, show them where the paintings are, are hidden. So that's my presentation, Matt. Thank you very much what, for coming on.
1: What about um, Bobby... I interviewed him, the mobster uh, guy, kind of the ex-mobster guy. Bobby Luisi. Luisi, thank you.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, what what about the guy that spoke with him that said right. he knew they were buried under under a slab in Florida or
0: something? I mean So he, he, Bobby Luisi uh had been a mobster, had been a construction guy, um, gotten involved in a cocaine ring. Um here in Boston in the late 90s, had two men working for him, Uh, one a guy named Bobby Guarenti, and Bobby Guarenti had, you know, been a low-level mobster here in Boston, got prosecuted, went to jail for 20 years for multiple bank robberies, got out in the early 90s and went on to near well Works and other act, criminal activity and one of the activities he he bonded with Bobby uh, Luisi whom you interviewed and they had a drug um, uh, trafficking operation outside of Boston and uh, when they were at this house that they were holed up at in the late 90s or 98 uh, a story about the Gardner Museum another is there a big break to happen, came on TV. And Bobby Guarenti said to uh, to to Luigi, hey, do you know where I could fence uh, uh, stolen artwork? And Luigi said, no, I I don't know anything about artwork. Uh, That's not my gig. Why? And he said, well, I may have some artwork hidden underneath a concrete slab underneath a house in Florida. So he told that, to, to Louiezie in 98. So many, uh, Louise gets prosecuted for other crimes. He gets locked up in the early OOs and he tells the feds in the early OOs what he's been told. And, uh, they go, um, checking one door, check another. They find out guarantee is dead. And, um, Mm. so they, they don't really follow up right then, but they go back to guarantee. They go back to Louise. And Louise, says, I, that's all he told me. Well, around the same time, guarantee's widow, about 2010 calls the FBI and says, um, I think my husband may have had access to those paintings. Separately? And 2010. So, um, you know, I'm still doing my reporting for the Globe on it. This never makes the light of day then. Uh, oh, really? Where? What did he do with them? He gave right. them to his best friend, Bobby Gentile. who's Bobby Gentile? He's a mobster, a low-level mobster lives in Hartford, outside of Hartford. Well, they go knock on Bobby Gentile's door, 2010. Bobby Gentile, um, I'll I'll weave in Louise's story into this. Uh, They they knock on Gentile's story in, in 2010, and Gentile says to them, Oh, yeah, I'm interested in that case. And yeah, but Garenti never gave me any of those paintings. He and I were very interested in that case because of the 10, then $5 million reward. We said, you know, we knew some of these guys, bad guys. We thought maybe we could find the paintings. We could get $5 million reward from you guys. And the Fed said, uh, we we don't believe you. We'll give you a lie. I said, I'll take a lie detector test. Every time they gave him a lie detector test, he flunked it. So what they did is they send in an undercover agent to Bobby's house, Gentile's house in Hartford. And the guy says to him, can you give me, do you have any stolen? Do you have any guns? I'd like to get some guns. Gentile says to him, no, no, no. I don't deal in any guns, nothing, nothing. And then he sees some Percocets on, on, the, uh, on the counter there in Gentile's house. Can I take these? He says, yeah, I, don't, I use them for my back. Well, they prosecuted Gentile for giving the Percocets. So they take Bobby, they, they they get Bobby out of the house and they get a search warrant for the house and they search the house, Gentile's house, and uh, they go through it. It's like a two day search and they don't find anything except down in the basement. They find a piece of paper like a, um, a piece of paper like this. Right, and on it is a list of all the stolen pieces, the thirteen stolen pieces, and what they would have gotten out of the black market. So now they know a little bit more about Gentile, and they say to him, "Where did you get this?" He says, "I didn't write that. It's written in French. How would I write?" Somebody that we and Garanti and I went to said, "And who knew art theft?" He wrote that for us. Well, they stayed interested in Gentile. He got out of jail in 2014, and I went and visited him in his house. He let me come and visited him. I interviewed him for five hours. He, you know, he denied, denied, denied ever having access to any of the paintings, you know. Uh, but at the end of it, he said to me, uh, "You know, I've given you a lot of material here, and it is in my book." Uh, And he says, what do I get out of this? So I'm thinking to myself, this is in January, February, 2014. Why is Bobby Gentile looking? He knows the lawyer had, his lawyer had let me come talk to him. He knows I can't give him any money. We can't, reporters can't pay for interviews. Right. So I said to him, Bobby, I can't give you any money, but how about do you and I do this? You have sworn on a stack of eyeballs, and on a lie detector test That you didn't have access You never saw any of the paintings Let's say You're lying Let's say you could tell me Another story How about this I'll use you As a source I'm a lawyer and I am a reporter I'll source the What you tell me But I need to know No more bullshit I need to know, where did you get the paintings from? What paintings did you get? Where did you store them? What happened to them? Why are you saying that, you know, even on your deathbed, this is 2014, on his deathbed in 2012, in jail, he said, I don't know. There are no paintings. I've never had any paintings. I said, why don't you tell me the truth? And I will split whatever this book that I write with you. I'll split the proceeds with you. I'm thinking to myself, what am I, you know, giving him this line? This is a line of BS. Reporters don't work this way. Reporters don't set out a scheme like this. Tell me what you know, and I'll put it into the book. But instead of saying, no, 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 I don't know anything. I've denied it, and that's the truth. He puts his head down. And for 10 seconds, he keeps his head down. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, he's gonna tell me the secret of the ages. And he puts, instead he puts his head up and he looks at me right with those dark eyes, those black eyes. Nope, I told you the truth. I know nothing, nothing, nothing. I don't know, I never had it, never had anything. So I said, I give him a hug. Thank you for all the information you've given to me. And it's all in my book. And I go out to my car and I call his lawyer. The first thing, Ryan McGuigan, terrific lawyer in Hartford, Connecticut. I said, Ryan, terrific interview. Last three days I've been talking to him for five hours. But I think he's lying through his eye teeth. Everything he's telling me. All these denials are lies. And Ryan says, what are you talking about What What lies? What does he say? I said, well, you know, I've got it all on tape. But at the last point, he told me, shut off the tape recorder, and he offers me this deal. What does he get out of this? And when I say we could write a book together, he won't do it. But he said, so you thought that if you split the proceeds of the book, that he might go for it and tell you a different story? And I said, yeah. That's what he was, why, what else was he thinking about? This option I gave him. He said, no, this is what he was thinking about, Steve. He was thinking about, I'm going to con this stupid reporter. And I'm going to say to him, give me $10,000, come back next week, and we'll start working on the book. But he knows a reporter, you don't have $10,000. So he didn't give, give you that option. But he's a con artist, Steve. He doesn't have any access to the paintings. So there was one more secret that he, that I asked him about and that was in the shed then in his backyard. I had been told that there was a shed and there was a shed in the backyard of Bobby's house and he gave me the keys to the shed. I opened up the the lock opened up the shed door like every shed we have except there's a false floor it's uh it's not the shed's floor it's another flooring why is there more other flooring is it was a false shed uh, uh, floor right bobby had taken the real shed's flooring out and dug ditches there were absolute ditches underneath the floors and in those ditches he would put rubber bins and the fbi believes that bobby had the paintings in those bins beneath the false floor but what had happened there had been a flood in the fall in the shed inside the shed in bobby's backyard and that the 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 the, the um and the the flood flooding had got under the flooring into the into the, um, into the, uh, into the the Rubbermaid bins and whatever were there had been ruined. So I said this to Bobby, I said, that's what happened. They were ruined in the bins. And he said, no, 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 I know that's what the FBI says, but it's not, it was motors. I had some stolen motors, who knows? But the secret ends with Bobby And Bobby died last year this time, 2021. And I had interviewed him about April of last year of 2021. And I said to him, I said, Bobby, the reason why you don't want to tell the truth is because you did have the paintings and they did get ruined in the bins. But you just don't want to be remembered. You know, he's an older, older man now. You don't want to be remembered this way as this man, as the man, who blew the artwork of the ages. And um, he said, you know, it's a good theory, but it's not true. I never had the artwork. Um, but, you know, that's where the FBI believes and that's where the museum believes that uh, the artwork ended up, as in Bobby, Louisa, uh, Bobby, sorry, Bobby Gentile's uh, false uh, uh, shed, not underneath the shed. Both Louisa, both Louise... Uh, both Gentile and Guarenti were working. So I was doing a podcast with WBUR uh, and The Globe and a podcast called Last Seen, 10 episodes about the case, this case. And the last episode, the 10th episode, has uh, about a dig that we did on a property uh, that, um, that guarantee had access to in Florida outside of Orlando and we did it in 2019, summer 2019, and wow. uh, we thought we had found. It was an empty lot. Now we had some. We you know we had gotten some. Um, what do they call the kind of surveying work done on the on the lot? And the surveyor said there is something beneath this ground that is an anomaly, and uh, the we gave them. a we gave the report to the FBI and the FBI thought it was significant enough that they um, commissioned a search, the Derek to go in and to dig it up, but uh, nothing, nothing was found. So, um, uh, so, you know, like I said, we've tried every option of investigative, that investigative reporting. And investigative uh, work can bring, uh, so there has to be another approach to unlock this secret, and that's why I call on Boston uh, to use its con- to in, in Boston, the conscience of Boston to get this artwork back. And there is a transcendent reason, and that's because we get a recovery of the greatest art uh, art theft in world history, and. Um, we get paintings back that Mrs Gardner wanted on the walls on her her museum's walls for all of us to appreciate. Okay. Well thank you very much Matt. Yeah,
1: I I appreciate that you know you got you know that that you know it so well and you you can, you know, articulate the entire story so concisely. I mean it's it's you know, it's great to just sit here and listen to you.
0: Well, it has a lot of dead ends and it has a lot of, uh, uh, you know, missed opportunities. It's horrible. And, but when you think of the uh, – all you have to do is Google Gardner Museum art theft, uh, and uh, the museum itself has a page to the theft to, uh, uh, on its on its uh, webpage, uh, you know, that will go through all the detail, And you'll see – Images of what was stolen, and you'll see why. Um, well, you know, if this is the artwork of the ages, Yeah and why, uh, at least, uh, you know, th- this th- this material does bel- belong back on the walls of 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 of, of, of the Isabella Stewart Museum.
1: Well, you know, it, like it, it really all has to be together. Had they been broken apart and sold, which is exactly. possible. Yeah, right. You know, like you, I, you know, whenever I talk to people, they're like, oh, they were probably sold. Well, it would have to be someone, some filthy, rich Japanese person right. or a, or a, an oligarchy or some someone who's willing to put them all up. And and, keep, and all of them weren't valuable, right? There were some oh. of the things.
0: Only four or five of them are, are stratospheric, right. uh, 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 strataphoric. Uh, strat- in uh, in value, um, but the if you look at the you know if you look at the uh, the like I said the museum's web page uh, on on the works uh, two Rembrandts you wouldn't bro- have broken them out of their frames and cut them out of the frames no. as they did. No, that's you, amateur. You did do terrible damage to them, right. but they can be. Uh, and the museum is willing to pay ten million dollars to get them back. They mm-hmm. can be restored. And for any lessening of value to the paintings themselves, comes back the recovery. And the recovery was 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 occasioned was caused by Boston's Boston's conscience and generosity. And that's that that remains to be seen. I challenge you, Boston. Do it for do it for your kids Grandkids, do it for my grandkids.
1: I appreciate you watching, and I'll bet you've never seen me that quiet on an episode or on a, on a, for an interview. Uh, I've, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but like I've watched a couple of documentaries. I've, I remember studying this in, uh, in college. I've watched two documentaries. One of them is a, is a, a multi-part series on Netflix about the Gardner Museum. I read a book that was written by the FBI agent that inter, that um that investigated the the Gardner uh, heist. Uh, really, honestly, it's 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 something that comes up over and over again. Uh, and you've probably even watched if you've ever watched like Sneaky Pete. Uh, that series, they at one of the episodes or a couple, I think it's one or two of the episodes is is based on the recovering. Of um, uh, of one of the paintings that was stolen, in the Gardner Museum, super interesting. Uh, you should check out the Netflix, uh, the Netflix uh, documentary series. And I appreciate you guys watching. Do me a favor, share the video, subscribe, hit the bell, leave me a comment, and I appreciate it. And I will see you around.